It's February 22nd, 2020, and I'm sorry it has taken as long as it has to follow up with my last edition of the Master's Club podcast, but I've been preoccupied with a lot of different projects. First and foremost, on March 31st, I will debut my seventh novel, a horror novel called Lunacy's Dance, which will be made available on Amazon for Kindle and paperback, as well as on e-readers through Smashwords, and if you're feeling really nasty, I have all my novels available through the Mighty Mishmashers subscription service, which embeds my novels onto the Mishmashers website in slick, convenient fashion. Lunacy's Dance is an ensemble story comprised of multiple main characters and numerous interconnecting subplots. The story follows college students at Gillette University who celebrate a successful year with a field trip to Mount Cass, a prestigious mountain that's famous for its spiritual and historical relevance in Maharis. The mountain is notorious in recent years for a couple of unexplained deaths and disappearances and being linked to unconfirmed cult activity. The novel follows many different characters, including the socially anxious Brian and his girlfriend KJ, a woman traumatized by an event a year prior, and Sean, an aspiring filmmaker, and his girlfriend Melissa, who dreams of being a school teacher despite her fear for what the future may hold. As they begin their traversal up the mountain, it becomes clear that something is very wrong, but the gravity of the situation isn't realized. As if the very mountain itself is alive and possessed, Lunacy's Dance takes their hand and waltzes in through a world of unexplainable torment and atrocities, seeing ghosts and fiends out for their heads. Other than that, I've been binging through a lot of the Academy Award-nominated films I might have missed out on earlier in the year. Although I originally intended this as a Martin Scorsese-dedicated edition, I have since decided to dial it back and share my thoughts on many of the more recent films I've been watching in the award season. First and foremost, however, will be Martin Scorsese's most recent film, The Irishman, that despite critical acclaim, went unawarded at the Academy Awards. Martin Scorsese has been a major topic of discussion on the internet over the last few months. This largely stems from the polarizing response given to his statements about the superhero genre or Marvel movies, referring to them as theme park rides and not real cinema. If 2019 is seen as a significant year for the often heralded director, I hope he'll be remembered for his three-and-a-half-hour artistic contribution and not an outlier opinion. I enjoy both Marvel movies and the superhero genre altogether. Marvel's recent Spider-Man Far From Home film even received high marks in a review here on Masters Club. This means it should be no surprise when I tell you I disagree with Scorsese's comments and do, in fact, respect the genre as an art form. Cinema is cinema, and while I do believe there's bad superhero films the same way I believe there's bad crime dramas and bad psychological thrillers, there are others I believe truly exceed. I believe it comes down to an argument of semantics with Scorsese, in that what he believes is cinema doesn't necessarily adhere to the textbook definition. I respect his opinion, I disagree with his opinion, and now I'll continue enjoying Scorsese's robust talent. Martin Scorsese is of a high breed as far as movie directors are concerned. I haven't reviewed very many films from Martin's filmography on Master's Club yet, but I can profess the absolute love I have for The Parted and The Aviator. I haven't watched The Taxi Driver or Goodfellas yet, but I'll, I'll buy a copy on Blu-ray of each as soon as I can. Something special about Scorsese is how he hasn't regressed or lost his way as his career has progressed. In 2011, he directed a very unique adventure drama with Hugo, an admitted commercial failure, and followed it with a hilarious and entertaining Wolf of Wall Street, a major success both critically and at the box office. The Irishman sees Martin Scorsese aligning with the Netflix streaming service to churn out his most expensive film to date, a whopping $159 million for production and as long as film as well, 209 minutes. The epic crime drama was written by Steven Zalian and was based on the book I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt. The film has a star-studded cast comprised of names like Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, as well as a supporting cast that includes Ray Romano, Bobby Cannavale, Anna Paquin, Stephen Graham, Stephanie Kurtzuba, Jesse Plemons, and Harvey Keitel. As you might surmise from a three-and-a-half-hour film, The Irishman comes with a lot to talk about. 
A film is about this guy named Frank Sheeran, that's De Niro's character, who's a truck driver turned hitman involved with mobster Russell Buffalino, played by George Carlin's savior Joe Pesci. Frank's character is a tangled web and, in my opinion, the most intriguing aspect about the film altogether. The character is rough around the edges to say the least, but throughout the whole film I had the illusion of humanity and sincerity in him. As the film progresses, however, you begin to see the nothingness inside of him. The film follows him throughout the decades, which includes his relationship with a powerful teamster, a large labor union, named Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino. The Irishman is a long film. I don't think anyone will argue with that sentiment. If I had watched the film in an actual theater, I might even argue the film is too long as well. That's not a movie, that's a miniseries in denial! The fact I was able to watch it on Netflix, sitting on my comfy couch, free to take a break at any moment, helped negate that, however. The way the film's paced also makes it very easy to step away from and come back to. I felt that at least the first two and a half hours or so doesn't have a lot of forward momentum. You're introduced to your characters and their world, their dynamic, and you watch a story unfold in front of you, but it doesn't have a true central conflict or captivation. If The Departed is a theme park ride, then it feels like a major chunk of The Irishman is the Lazy River ride. And yes, I made that analogy on purpose. It's entertaining, make no mistake, but it's casual. Al Pacino's character of Jimmy Hoffa is fueled by self-worth and pride and is often hilarious. He isn't hilarious in a silly dancing Leonardo DiCaprio way, but rather like my grandpa yelling at a store's cashier about flip-flops. The cinematography and small nuances are minimalist but effective, like when a character is introduced and text shows up to tell you they died from a gunshot or they disappeared off the earth. If we're honest, I think at least half an hour could have been shaved off The Irishman and it would have been an improvement as a feature film. Martin Scorsese is a master of the craft, but he likes to beat around the bush and even be frivolous at certain times. Regardless, and I'll bring it back to the merits of the home video platform, I think it allows the story the chance to breathe in an organic fashion. Personally, I found that the three and a half hours didn't, in fact, feel like three and a half hours. The special effects and CGI involved in the Irishman creation might be off-putting on occasion, especially when it's depicting our main character Frank Sheeran through the years. I never found it to be egregious, but I will admit it does take some getting used to at first. The most interesting thing about The Irishman, in my opinion, is Frank's character, which I touched upon earlier. It isn't necessarily that Robert De Niro is the standout performance in the film. I mean, he's very good, however, I think the same can be said for Al Pacino and, on a smaller level, Joe Pesci. It's the way the film takes the piss out of everything he does. Gangster films can often glamorize crime and those involved with it. I'm not really complaining because it's good entertainment, but I think this film is more thoughtful on what happens on the inside of that person. Whether it be from his time serving in the war or his eventual involvement as a mafia hitman, it shows Frank's developing callousness of how his insides are being mined out of him and making for a very empty Ziploc bag masquerading among us as human. I feel like I enjoyed The Irishman more after I watched it than while I watched it. Once everything had the chance to marinate, I began to fully appreciate certain things about it. The Irishman is a profound, insightful perspective on its characters and their plights, bolstered by strong performances all around. I'd highly recommend it. I enjoyed The Irishman a lot, and honest and truly, had I not reviewed Martin Scorsese's The Departed on Masters Club only a few days prior, the film would have defeated Gerald's game for the Masters Club movie championship. Instead, however, Martin Scorsese's most recent film will have to settle for second place on the list. Not too shabby, which will soon be celebrating its 100th review posted. The next film I will be talking about is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a film which won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor and Best Production Design. Quentin Tarantino has been regarded as one of the most quintessential filmmakers alive and kicking ever since Pulp Fiction burst on the scene, receiving critical acclaim and putting on his off-brand, 
rough-around-the-edges style on the big screen. The director has had an interesting career since then, developing a catalog of films mostly well-received from an array of genres. Whether it be the samurai film series Kill Bill, the black comedy war film Inglorious Bastards, or his foray into westerns with Django Unchained, my personal favorite, and The Hateful Eight, my least favorite. Although filmmakers like Martin Scorsese have continued directing worthwhile features well into their 70s, it would appear Tarantino is content with winding his career down with a taut and tidy tin, all likely to be released before his 60th birthday. His latest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, marks his ninth film. This, of course, depends on which way you slice it. Technically, Tarantino has 10 feature-length productions under his belt, but by either consolidating the Kill Bill duology as he intended, or ignoring his grindhouse film Death Proof altogether, it checks out. I was excited for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even though I didn't know what to expect. Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are both formidable actors, particularly the former, in my opinion, and it's nice to see younger talent like Margot Robbie and Dakota Fanning able to cut their teeth with such an influential director. Margot Robbie's character is that of Sharon Tate, a fact that immediately drew suspicion for what the film might be about. Sharon Tate was an actress and model held as one of the most promising newcomers in cinema. Her life was tragically cut short when she was murdered by members of the infamous Manson family. She was eight and a half months pregnant when she died. This led everyone to speculate that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would be Tarantino tackling Charles Manson and the heinous crimes he and his cult committed. In truth, Once Upon a Time is less about the Manson murders and can more aptly be described as Manson murder adjacent. It wouldn't be right to say that the film doesn't tackle them in a significant way, but it'd be best to say that they're a looming shadow in the background, waiting for the chance to pounce out. This is not to say a character study on Charles Manson or the sociology of the group involved. Instead, Once Upon a Time feels like a fairy tale tribute to a bygone era. The same way Tarantino touched upon spaghetti westerns, exploitation films, and samurai action movies, this film allows him his love letter to the golden age of Hollywood. The film was a box office success, garnering nearly $400 million at the worldwide box office, becoming the second highest grossing film of the director's career, and attained a positive critical reception as well. Set in Los Angeles, it's 1969, and actor Rick Dalton has found that his career is starting to dwindle amid the changing film industry, dealt with the unfortunate blow of realizing he isn't as great as he once was. Quentin Tarantino has always been self-indulgent, impulsive, and unrestrained. These are all factors that contribute a lot to why we like him. He's opinionated, and although he's a devout movie buff, it didn't seem to be arthouse films that caught his eye most times. The parallels between Rick Dalton's dwindling career and what we can assume are Tarantino's perceptions about the loss of the Golden Age, or perhaps even a parallel to his own career, are easy to draw. The best thing about Rick's character, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is it allows Tarantino to celebrate the art of filmmaking, while allowing DiCaprio to show his acting chops and the struggles of his character. Some of my favorite scenes are actually him playing characters as Rick Dalton, stumbling on his lines at times, then at others doing them particularly well. Rick Dalton isn't alone in Hollywood, as he finds a friend in his stuntman, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. Cliff Booth has lived a very different life than Rick Dalton. Instead of fancy mansion homes, Cliff lives in a small trailer. Likewise, Rick's sense of entitlement and need for self-worth isn't mirrored back. Frankly put, Cliff Booth seems like a cool guy. In fact, Cliff almost seems like too nice of a guy. He's considerate and he's sincere, and he always has Rick Dalton's back through thick and thin, constantly toting the guy's ego. He's so likable, in fact, you might find yourself constantly waiting for the bomb to drop on him, as if he'll reveal himself as a supervillain or something, but it never really does. There is admittedly the possibility he killed his wife, however. Although Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are fictional, it's clear Quentin Tarantino drew at least some inspiration from Burt Reynolds and his friendship with stuntman Hal Needham. 
There's also a parallel to be drawn for Billy Booth's death and the death of Natalie Wood, which involved her husband, Robert Wagner, and their friend, Christopher Walken, on a yacht. Margot Robbie's performance as Sharon Tate has drawn some criticism because of the little amount of character development she was afforded. Having watched the film and read Quentin Tarantino's explanation, I feel inclined to agree with him and disagree with naysayers. The film doesn't present her so much as a character as it does an idea. She doesn't own the frame because of anything she says, but instead she haunts it. Her presence feels melancholy and even sad, with you anticipating the looming shadow in the background to pounce at any moment. In the end, Maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood isn't so much a love letter as it is a story being told fittingly, a Once Upon a Time fairy tale, that allowed Tarantino the final cut privilege. It neither sees Hollywood purely for what it is nor entirely glamorizes it. Instead, it sees it the way Tarantino sees it, or at the very least has chosen to present it. If nothing else, it feels true to the director's catalog leading up. The film has glimmers of humor, as is to be expected, and sees strong performances from Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, respectively, but never particularly elevates itself beyond average Tarantino fare. This isn't detrimental, not if you've enjoyed Pulp Fiction, for instance, and it's at times frivolous, but entertaining nature. When Once Upon a Time in Hollywood loses its linearity and structural clarity, it walks the line between what works and what's superfluous. The film is well-crafted, but that doesn't mean it can't, at times, feel tedious and undisciplined. As the film ends, nearly approaching a third hour, it does so in suitable balls-to-the-wall Tarantino fashion. It's an enjoyable end as well. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has an interesting mix, the relationship between Rick and Cliff, as well as the pending presence of the Manson family and how it all relates to Sharon Tate. I think it all adds up in a way that concocts a good film, but I partly wonder if the ideas would have been better off separated and expanded on rather than brought together and perhaps diluted. Nevertheless, I would recommend it as an entertaining, well-aimed Quentin Tarantino film that'll stir up conversation and contemplation after it has been watched. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood offers an enjoyable Quentin Tarantino film, even if I wouldn't necessarily regard it as a contender for the Masters Club Championship, the same way I did The Irishman. The film instead lands smack dab in the middle of the good movies tier of the list. The last film I will be sharing my opinion on is the South Korean film Parasite. The Academy Awards receive a lot of criticism and stigma in regards to elitism and exclusivity for what they nominate and subsequently award at the coveted Oscar ceremony. Whether it is a fantastic How to Train Your Dragon film losing out on Best Animation again, or something more significant like how women are represented in the industry, the Oscars oftentimes receive the lion's share when it comes to award show-related criticism. This year was no different as far as controversy is concerned, although something significant did happen as far as inclusion is concerned. Parasite became the first non-English film to receive an Academy Award for Best Picture. Not only that, but Parasite stands proudly as not only the first South Korean film to receive Academy recognition, but came home with more accolades as well like Best Foreign Language Film, and Best Director. As of now, the film has received critical acclaim from critics, heralding it as one of the best South Korean films ever made, and it has grossed nearly 200 million worldwide. The film has clearly captured the zeitgeist, so to speak, and while many of us here at Masters Club already coveted South Korean cinema, it begs to ask whether or not the film is on par with the reception it has received. Personally, although I don't necessarily invest a lot of credibility in the Academy Awards, I do have a level of admiration for them. They may turn a blind eye to any and all merit had by mainstream blockbusters, and they may shun every genre film. I particularly enjoyed Jordan Pilled's Us this year. But they can offer a spotlight for films that otherwise might not turn heads the way more popular films may. Parasite isn't the type of film often recognized by the Academy, but it is a prime example of bringing attention to a film that might go overlooked. 
I thoroughly enjoy South Korean films, and they have been something I've been wanting to further pursue and discuss on Masters Club, but it is only by happenstance I even own a copy of Parasite. And had I not heard all the buzz about it, it might have taken me a while to sit down and watch it. I went into this film blind with little to no concrete information regarding its story. And I think, really, that holds a lot of the film's charm. In a short description, Parasite follows a poor family who hatched this scheme to become employed by a wealthy family. Their approach is very Frank Abagnale, the real-life person that Catch Me If You Can is based on, presenting themselves as if they were highly qualified for the jobs they're seeking employment on, despite the fact they are completely full of it. The film is directed by Bong Joon-ho, a director I am familiar with, but not incredibly so. I know of movies like Snowpiercer and Okja, but I haven't seen them. The only film I had to go on was his directorial contribution for the critically acclaimed monster movie, The Host, which I had seen but didn't leave an impression on me the way I would like. The film was written by Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won, and stars the cast of Song Kang-ho, Lee Sun-kyun, Cho Yeot-jung, Choi Woo-shik, and Park Sodam. Of those, the name that struck out the most was Song Kang-ho, as I had seen him in many Park Chan-wook movies like The Vengeance Trilogy and Thirst. Parasite is a very watchable film, in fact. Something I think worth establishing off the bat is exactly how watchable it is. Even though I love something like Old Boy or I Saw the Devil and their harrowing execution, I can understand it may not be everyone else's cup of tea. Parasite's characters are, on some level, easy to insert oneself too. The main cast, comprised of a mother and father and their son and daughter, have been dealt hard times to say the least. I think many of us can relate to that. Obviously, I hope none of us are in a situation as harsh or extreme as portrayed, but I think the characters are very easy to empathize with. They live in a small, semi-basement apartment that is a hangout for drunkards looking for somewhere to piss at. The family's biggest crime in the movie is wanting more from life than the opportunities they have been given. And, you know, the other crimes they commit. It helps that they are likable as well. Their banter as a family feels heartfelt and sincere, and then the dialogue throughout is filled with light heart humor, even as it tackles very serious subject matter like social inequality and class conflict. Song Kang-ho offers a downtrodden perspective on life and poverty, carrying a lot of the film's emotional depth, whereas Choi and Park carry a charisma and confidence that is infectious with every scheme they concoct. The film is considerate in its execution. You're meant to feel for the poor family, but that doesn't necessarily entail you're meant to hate the wealthy one. They are more layered than that, like in life. Every now and again, they say something that shows their entitled or perceived betterment, which is a key point in the film, but you're also met with what are otherwise normal, everyday people accustomed to a lavish lifestyle. They aren't evildoers donning black robes and shooting thunderbolts from their fingertips, but individuals who have a lot and feel superior to those who don't. The film is nicely shot, with a lot of enjoyable transitions and sly foreshadowing, of which it seems to be like a smorgasbord for. I found myself analyzing every shot, wondering the significance of a ketchup packet squirting or the significance of the American Indian wear seen in the film, and how it pertains to the story as a whole. Normally, I don't think a film is meant to be dissected, but I found that Parasite is a film that was given enough attention to detail that you'll actually find yourself discovering small details later on in retrospect, discovering the significance to lines that were smartly disguised as throwaway banter. I highly recommend Parasite. I think this is a film you will need to see for yourself to know for certain, but I definitely believe it is deserving of the many accolades it received. It is detail-oriented, well-shot, and directed, and it has a storyline both intriguing and timely, succeeding at emotional depth without bogging itself down or ever feeling humdrum. It's a crazy, ambitious journey of a movie, and it's one of the best I've seen in 2019. This leaves us to decide where Parasite lands on the list, and the unfortunate answer is that I do believe it falls short of claiming the Masters Club Championship, and personally, I do believe I ultimately enjoyed The Irishman more. This isn't to suggest I believe The Irishman was snubbed at the Academy Awards, and honestly, I prefer Parasite winning because I believe the filmmaker and talent involved have a lot more to gain from the victory. In the end, Parasite lands in the great tier here on Masters Club, becoming the first but certainly not the last foreign film to do so. 
That said, thanks for joining me on this edition of the Masters Club Podcast. My name is McConaughey, and I will see you again soon with hopes of tackling the Harry Potter series, among others.